this is your first time here, uh, again, we're, our church, we are going through a sermon series uh, through the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5 to 7. Uh, it's through the Sermon on the Mount. That's what it's famously known as. Uh, this is a collection of Jesus' most important teachings. And so if you guys have your Bibles or if you have your program, we're going to keep going and we're going to look at Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17 all the way to verse 20. Verse 17 to 20. It's just four verses. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 20. This is still in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. He gave the Beatitudes that we went through last week. Uh, Pastor Sam preached on uh, the idea of being salt and light a few weeks ago before that. And today, starting verse 17, this is what Jesus says. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of these least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the reading of God's word. So we mentioned earlier when we started the series that the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' explanation of what life in the kingdom of heaven looks like. It is not a better way to live life or how you can improve your life that you're living right now. But Jesus is saying this is the true way to live. It's a new way to live. It's a new way to be human. Because, and when you actually hear what Jesus is saying and you actually go, wow, Jesus wants people to live this way. He's saying this is real life. Uh, life in the kingdom, it almost sounds like a, an alternate world because the ways of the kingdom is very upside down. If, and it could be very disorienting if you really try to apply it. It's like if you've ever been to uh, the country of India, or you've ever been to Australia, or you've ever been to the UK, you'll notice that life is similar there to here and yet a little bit different. For example, the roads. Uh, I don't know if you guys realize, but the way we drive in, in the United States, this is, uh, we all drive on the right side of the road. There's a picture it there. This is how we drive, right? Every single street in the road here, uh, it's always the right side going up. And it feels like this side, the left side is going down. Drivers, the driver's seat is on the left side. And so that's why left turns, you have to be more careful. Right turns, you just have to make sure that you, it's safe to go. And that's how most of the world, that's how the streets are constructed. And we just presume that's just the way it is. And yet, did you know that there are 76 countries that drive the complete opposite way? On the next slide, there's most, so countries like India, like the UK, like Australia, the road's like this, where all of a sudden the steering wheel's on the other side, and the way the traffic works is just really disorienting. And when you go to a country like this and you try to drive, or you're even just in a car like that, it's so, like, weird because it's so similar to what we do here, and yet it's all backwards. It's all very counterintuitive to all your instincts and how you naturally will do things. And this is why Jesus, he spends so much time teaching on the kingdom. It's not just a one sermon thing. But for Jesus, he is teaching us that in order to understand life in the kingdom, the way real life is, you have to unlearn the old things that we knew and learn a new way to live life. That's why last week through the Beatitudes, the first flipping of our upside-downness has been revealed. Where Jesus gives not commands, the Beatitudes are not commands to follow. They are not virtues to strive after. They're pronouncements. Jesus is telling us who's blessed. Who's really blessed in this world? While the world says those who are blessed, it's based, it's based on your salary, it's based on your status, it's based on how many people follow you on social media. In the kingdom, those who are blessed are those who are poor. Poor in spirits, people who are mourning, who went through tragedies, 
people who are being persecuted. It's just an upside-down way of viewing the blessed life. That's life in the kingdom. Now today, and for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to look at what does life look like in the kingdom? Like how are you actually supposed to live in the kingdom according to Jesus? And maybe a more specific question, what are the rules, quote rules, or the resources that tell us how we should live according to the kingdom? And this is really important because every individual and every community, there is something we lean upon to guide us in life, to tell us what the, quote, rules are or how we should live. For example, if you came into a home and you walk in, you go, should I take off my shoes or should I keep it on? It depends on the parents. Depends on the parents. If they're Asian, for sure you must take it off, right? For sure you don't let their shoes on inside the house. But everything else you just don't know because it depends on the parents. They govern the household. Or if you go into a workplace and you go, hmm, how long is the maternity leave here? If I have a child, how much time can I get off? It depends on the policies and procedures of that particular workplace and what it says. Or if you're somebody where you, uh, in a different country, which side of the street do you drive on, left or right? Depends on the laws. Depends on how things are written out in that particular country. Now, Jesus' audience, the people he's speaking the Sermon on the Mount to, even though they are poor, even though they are fishermen, they are on the margins, they're also Jewish. They are primarily a Jewish religious community. And that means that most of their life has been governed by the Torah or the scriptures. What they should eat, how they should live, how they should go about their marriages. That's what their life is all about. And yet here is Jesus, this Jewish rabbi, saying, come into my kingdom and I'm going to show you a new way. And this is going to be confusing. Because now the question is, what governs their life? What's going to govern them? What's going to guide them into life? Is it Jesus' words? What about the scriptures, though? What about the Torah? That's God's word. And now it's kind of complicated. What do you do with those two things? And I think we kind of run into a similar complexity today. See, when you attend any church, any Christian church, you know that the scriptures, the Torah, or what we call is the Bible, what we call the Bible, it's supposed to play a central role in the life of the community and the life of every individual. And yet, I find it's kind of complicated. It's a li- this is complicated, like what to do with this. That's okay, I don't need that. This is complicated. Because Christians, we believe that this is, uh, God's, these are God's words that he's speaking to us. And we are taught, especially if you grew up in the church, you have to read this so you could grow spiritually. So you grow to know God. But there's a couple of problems, I think, with this. And here's a couple ones. If you grew up in the church, uh, one problem might be, you know you should read this. QTs, devotionals, and so forth. And yet, you don't. It's just sitting there, and you're like, oh, it's like a guilty thing that's there. It's because it's really hard. It, if you actually read it, it's boring. Like this part is really bo- after Genesis, it's boring. Or even after Genesis, like what's it even saying? What is it even saying? And it's kind of weird, like weird stories. And so you just kind of put it away, and I, I get it. For others, it's not so much that it's weird or so forth, but you try to read it, but you don't know what to do with it. After you read a chapter, you go, okay, so how do I apply Leviticus into my life today? How do I apply that chapter into my workplace today? And you just don't know what to do with it. So it's not really useful. Or to some of us, like, you read the Bible and you get what it's saying, and that's the problem. There's a lot of parts in there that you feel is regressive, that you feel like is very much like old school or archaic or even like, what? That's what the Bible says? And so what ends up happening is the Bible we end up having a very awkward relationship with the Bible. It's like he's like our childhood friend 
who we kind of are historically loyal to each other, but he got kind of weird, or you think he's weird now. So you don't really want to spend time with them on your free time. If you have to, you will, like on a Sunday. Like, okay, you'll listen to what he has to say. But apart from that, free time, I don't think so. It's kind of, kind of weird. Don't know what to do with it. But here's the thing. If we want to understand how the kingdom of heaven works, if we want to understand what Jesus is going to say the rest of this Sermon on the Mount, we have to actually understand what role this plays in our lives. We have to understand, well, what role, what, what is this relationship that I have with the Bible? And you might know what your view is of this. You might even know what my view is of this. But have you ever come to ask, what's Jesus' view of the Bible? If Jesus were to preach on what the Bible is, what would Jesus say? What would he say? What would Jesus say is how you should view the Bible? What would Jesus say? And how does this all relate to the kingdom? Chapter 5, verse 17 and 20, we find out. This is one of the most difficult passages of the entire Sermon on the Mount. And yet it is the key to unlocking how to understand the rest of the sermon. And this is where we actually find out what does Jesus say about the Bible. He's very explicit where he talks about what the Bible is about. So we're going to go about it in three ways. We're going, to, we're going to tackle this by asking, number one, what is the Bible? What is the Bible according to Jesus? What does he say? Number two, why do we need the Bible? Like why is this even something that's relevant in our lives in the 21st century according to Jesus? And third, how should we live the Bible out? How do we live out things like Leviticus in the 21st century according to Jesus? So what is it? Why do we need it? How do we live it out? Number one, what is the Bible? So recently, my wife and I, we started watching on Disney Plus Moon Knight. I'm not sure if any of you guys have watched that show, Moon Knight. Just know if you haven't watched it yet, it's really weird. It's a weird show. Uh, very weird, super different. Uh, so weird, so different that in the middle of the, of the episode, my wife turned to me going, is this a Marvel show? Like, is this, it doesn't feel like a Marvel show, and I get it. It's weird, it's different. It doesn't follow the normal protocols of Marvel. Jesus is kind of like Moon Knight. He was like Moon Knight in the first century, where he came branded as a Jewish rabbi. He branded himself as a Jewish rabbi. And yet when he would teach and when he would do ministry, it was kind of weird. It was really different. For example, in the Old Testament, every Jew knew you practice kosher. It's all about purity. So you stay away from certain people who are considered unclean. You stay away from certain types of food. And yet Jesus, what does he do? He spends time with sinners and tax collectors all the time. In the Old Testament, you just knew you don't work on the Sabbath. You don't do anything on the Sabbath. And yet Jesus, he's constantly healing people on the Sabbath. And even Jesus' followers, they're kind of weird. Because every Jew knew that the sacrificial system, that is central to the Jewish life. And yet all of Jesus' Jewish followers, they said, you don't need that anymore. The sacrifices are all done. In fact, when you keep reading the Sermon on the Mount, do you remember what Jesus says? He says things like, you have heard it was said in the Old Testament, but now I say unto you this. And when you hear that, you kind of tend to think, oh, you know what Jesus, it sounds like he's doing? The way, the way he's doing ministry, the way he's teaching, it sounds like he's canceling the Old Testament. It sounds like he's doing a new thing where he's saying, hey, you know, this thing that used to guide you, you don't need this anymore. Just listen to what I'm going to say right now. Just listen to the red letters of the Bible. And today, many Christians, I think we kind of adopted this mentality where we go, that's right, you know, there's a lot of stuff that doesn't make sense anymore. And today, you know, we don't really need that as much. Let's just follow what Jesus says. I like what um, this one author's name is Sky Jethany. He says, since we don't, you know, since that's kind of our mentality, a lot of Christians, we have two Bibles that we use. There is uh, what he calls first the actual Bible. It's on the screen here. The actual Bible is Old Testament. 
New Testament, 66 books. We go, yes, that's God speaking. That's the actual Bible. But he says, in reality, though, there's a second Bible, and this is the real Bible we use, which he calls the functional Bible. This is what we actually live by. It's a lot smaller, a lot less Old Testament, and basically it's Genesis 1, a few Psalms, and Romans 8.28. Those are things that kind of guide us, right? And we feel like that's okay. We feel that's okay. That's in our memory bank. Everything else is kind of weird. We can follow Jesus without engaging all of that stuff. And the one thing that we keep saying is, at least I'm praying. At least I'm praying to keep my relationship with Jesus alive. And yet, when Jesus talks about the Bible, he doesn't talk like that at all. Despite what he's doing, despite what he's teaching, Jesus, he does not cancel what most of the book says, what, mo what the Torah says, but he actually affirms everything. Look again what it says in verse 17 in the programs of Matthew 5. Jesus says, do not think I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. But to fulfill them. Now that's an interesting phrase, the law of the prophets. What does he mean by that? Basically that is a summary of the Old Testament. Because the law, that's not, don't think of Ten Commandments only. That refers to the first five books of the Bible. That's how Jews understood it. It's the Genesis, uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. It's referring to the Pentateuch, as Christians call it. And the prophets, that refers to the rest. Because they believe that every other book is written by some type of prophetic voice. And Jesus says, it's very interesting. Jesus says that I have come not to abolish those, the Old Testament. And he doesn't go, and, but instead I've come to keep it. Or I want you to keep it. Or I've come to obey it. That's not what Jesus says. But notice Jesus, the word he uses. I have come to what? Fulfill. To fulfill it. What does that mean? What does it mean for Jesus to fulfill the Old Testament? Now, the Gospel of Matthew, just know this is the key word. Matthew, he is all about fulfillment. Before chapter 5 and chapters 1 to 4, he mentions the word fulfillment seven times. So he's like, so Matthew, he's like, let me tell you about Jesus. Jesus did this, 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 by the way. This, did you know this fulfilled this in the Old Testament? He keeps doing that over and over again. And the way Matthew uses that term is kind of weird. Because when we think fulfillment, we think like, oh, something was predicted and you fulfilled it, right? So an example, there's going to be a son of David who's going to be born in Bethlehem. Oh, and Matthew, there's Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Fulfillment, right? And that's true. Matthew does that sometimes. But there's also other weird parts where he goes, where Herod kills all the children in Bethlehem, all the male children. And Matthew goes, and that fulfills this Old Testament prophecy that has nothing to do with the Messiah. It's like this random event that happened in the Old Testament. He goes, see, that fulfills it. Or even Jesus, he goes, it's not just the prophecies, but he goes, I fulfilled the law. The, the Ten Commandments, do not steal, do not commit adultery. I fulfill that. What does that even mean? How do you fulfill a command? How do you make sense of this? And there are, if you read anyone who tries to answer that question, there are so many different complex ways to answer that that I just don't find helpful. So let me tell you what makes me understand what this is saying. And the easiest pathway to make sense of it is the Marvel Universe. All right? So bear with me. I'm going to get a little nerdy, okay? This is going to sound heretical, but the Bible... And the Marvel Cinematic Universe, there are so many parallels between those two. And let me explain. The Bible has 66 books that have 35 different authors, not just one, 35 different authors who wrote that book. And it was written over a span of thousands of years. That's the Bible. The MCU, it is 39 movies and TV shows with a bunch of different directors, 17 to be specific, in a span of 14 years where they all created now, if you ever watch those Marvel movies, you'll know that every single movie is its own story. 
It is its own story, and yet we also know if you're a fan, it is connected to a greater story. A greater story. You can enjoy each movie individually, but if you watch all of them, it's amazing. And what's really interesting is that the first 23 MCU movies, they are all a collection, what they call the Infinity Saga. And that sounds so nerdy as I say that, but that's what it's called, the Infinity Saga. And if you ever watch those, you'll know that that saga, those movies, it ended with Avengers Endgame. And it ended because we saw certain characters die and because certain actors' contracts ran out, and it's all over. And yet, even though it's over, Robbie Downey Jr., he's not there. Chris Evans, he's not there. There's still Moon Knights coming out. There's Doctor Strange coming out. The MCU lives on. It lives on. In fact, there are rumors of a new Iron Man coming, of a new Captain America, of a new Avengers. And if you are somebody who doesn't follow Marvel and you hear that, you go, oh, there's a new Iron Man movie or Avengers movie? Is it like Batman where pretty much it's a reboot where you have the same character but different actor and you just kind of redo everything? And that's what certain people might think. But if you are a true Marvel fan, you will be insulted if you heard someone say that. Like, it is nothing like Batman. It is not like that where it's a story that's disconnected from everything else. Everything that's happening now in Marvel it is the fulfillment of everything that happened before. It is so connected. If you want to understand what's happening now in Marvel, you cannot ignore the Infinity Saga. In fact, you must watch all of it to appreciate fully what's happening right now. They are deeply connected. Deeply connected. And Jesus is saying something similar. He's saying something similar. He is not rebooting Everything in the Old Testament that happened before. He's not saying, oh, that's all irrelevant. He's saying everything that happened, it is pointing to something. It's pointing to me. If you want to appreciate what I'm doing or if you want to know what I'm doing, you cannot ignore all this. In fact, you must pay attention all the more to it. Because the Bible, it is not a book of rules, a book of commands to tell you what to do. Ultimately, what Jesus is pretty much saying is the Bible is a story. It's a story that points to him. And that's why Jesus says in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, even more explicitly, he says, verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. And when you see the Bible, not as a, a, a bunch of commands of what to do today, but it's a story about Jesus, it makes a lot more sense of how to look at the Bible. For example, did you know that the Bible, 43% of the Bible... Are stories. When you read this, 43% are stories. And 33% are poems about those stories. That means about this much of the Bible are stories and poems. And that means this much right here, which is less than about 15% or so, are commands, exhortations, letters. Because Jesus and all the writers of the Bible, they didn't see this as a book of rules for you to follow, to learn how to go about your day. But it's primarily a story. That's why notice Jesus when he teaches. The Sermon on the Mount is that rare moment where he tells us how to live. But most of his teachings, how does he teach? It's parables. He always teaches in stories. Now why does this matter? What's the implication for us? Well, it helps, I think, in a couple ways. Number one is this. It helps understand why certain parts in the Old Testament don't apply to us anymore. Like, for example, why don't we keep kosher as Christians? Why don't we circumcise as a command? Why don't we uh, practice sacrifices? It's because the Bible is a story, 
and we are part of a new chapter in that story. It's like watching the new Marvel films going, hey, wait a second, where are the Avengers? Why aren't the Avengers assembling? Or what? why is Loki alive? Why isn't Hulk getting angry? What's going on? Oh, that's the old Marvel movies. But it's new now. We're part of a new, new part of the story. You're referring back to that part that doesn't apply. And Jesus is saying the same thing. Those parts, they don't contradict each other. It's part of the story. And Jesus is saying, I'm not contradicting the Old Testament. Kosher laws, circumcision, those were all good at that time. But we are part of a new part of a story and he's revealing that as he does his ministry. So in one sense, it helps understand the Old Testament. But here's another thing. Here's the most significant. The reason why it helps to know the Bible is a story is this explains why so many of us struggle being passionate about Jesus. It's, uh, last Marvel reference, and I'm done. No more Marvel reference, but last one, okay? I remember um, I went to watch the premiere of Avengers Endgame, like the first night, opening night. Amazing. Not just the movie, but the crowd. Crowd was awesome. Like every time a character showed up, everyone just starts clapping. I'm like, this is my crowd. Like, that's exactly right. Like, that's how it should be. When a battle scene happened, you could tell everyone just like cheering and so forth. I'm like, oh my gosh, there's a bunch of nerds here. Awesome. I love it. And every sad scene, you heard people sniffling and they're crying. I'm like, oh my gosh, they're crying. Awesome. You could just be free with your emotions. And it was great. And when the credits happened, everyone stands up and cheer. Amazing experience. Fast forward years later, recently I went to the Spider-Man No Way Home premiere. <sighs> Horrible. Not because of the movie. Movie is fantastic. But that crowd was so lame. Like when a character came out, that was like, oh my gosh, that character. I started clapping. Silence. Everyone thought I was the nerd. And I was like, oh my, you guys don't know who that is? When other characters came out, I was like, oh, but nobody said anything. Not, nothing at all. And then when, like, sad moments happened, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is so sad. And I look around, they're on their phones. I was like, this premiere sucks. This is a, not a good experience for me. Now, when I look back at that, what was the big difference? What was the difference between the Endgame crowd and the Spider-Man No Way Home crowd? If I were to guess, that Endgame crowd, they knew Marvel pretty well. They watched all the movies they anticipated what was happening. They saw the fulfillment of what was happening, and they were going crazy. Well, this Spider-Man crowd, that might have been their first Marvel movie. And they thought, oh, that's cool. Oh, that's interesting. And that's all they thought. And in some of the way, I think this is how Christians are. We place our faith in Jesus. We're part of the kingdom, but nobody's excited. Nobody's excited. And the reason why is because we don't know the story of the kingdom. We don't, we're not really familiar with it. And so when God shows up and something happens, we're like, oh, that's cool. That's nice. Versus like, wow, God is moving. And he's always moved like this. In fact, he prophesied that he moved like that. We don't think that way. Moments of forgiveness or healing or moments of justice that takes place. We don't think much of it because we're not familiar with that story of God. And so in order for us to, before I move on with this, let me just address a couple of different groups here. If you're somebody who's new to the church or exploring Christianity, again, the complicated relationship with this. You like Jesus and people, but like what this actually says could be kind of weird. But what again, the encouragement is, if this is a story, and it's a story about a person named Jesus, and how you can know him, then you should expect some complicated parts. Some parts you may not agree with, some parts you might struggle with. I always like what Tim Keller says, he says it like this, quote, if you don't trust the Bible enough to let it challenge and correct your thinking, how could you ever have a personal relationship with God? In any true personal relationship, the other person has to be able to contradict you. 
Only if your God can say things that outrage you and make you struggle, as in a real friendship or marriage, will you know that you've gotten hold of a real God and not a figment of your imagination. Story of a person, not a philosophy of life, story of a person revealing himself to you. Now, if you're a Christian, though, and you're someone, I I believe in God, I believe in the Bible, I believe in the kingdom, realize that there is a, a ceiling of how passionate you could be for Jesus without this in your life. There's a ceiling to it. Because Jesus says, if you want to know me, you have to know this. And if we go, well, I'm, I'm praying, though. I'm fellowshipping, though. But this, I don't really need this. You could expect your passion would never be that high. Because you don't know what's going on with the kingdom. And you won't see what's happening in the kingdom right now. Now, if the Bible is about that, it's about Jesus and so forth. And you go, I do love Jesus. I want to try hard to know him. Then, you know, all good. But why should you even care about the Bible? Like, why does it, does it even matter to care about the Bible, to grow in Jesus? Like, why does it even matter? And that leads to the second point, why we need the Bible. Jesus says the scriptures point to him. It ultimately points to him. As a follower, you don't disregard any of it. If it's all about me, you cannot skip the parts. It's all about me. And it all says something about me. Pay attention to everything. Look again what it says in verse 19. Jesus says, therefore, whoever relax, relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same... They will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does them and teaches them, they will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Listen to the commands of what it says. Follow them and you will be great. Now, it's really interesting. He doesn't go, you'll be great or you'll be moral or you'll be righteous. But he uses an interesting phrase. You'll be great in the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? Follow this, you'll be great in the kingdom of heaven. Um, This is where uh, it's helpful to do a sermon series because I could refer back to other sermons, but if you've been here with us, you'll know that the kingdom of heaven, remember, it's a place where God's will is done. It's a place where God defines evil and good for us. And that's the way the world's supposed to be. The world's supposed to be a place where we are under a king and we follow what he says about good and evil. And that's essentially what the kingdom of heaven is. That's the way reality works. The problem, though, is that we are doing things our own way as human beings. We define what good or evil is. And so we are living in a sense of lie. And so what happens, though, is if you, what Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to bring us back to the kingdom, which is falling under God's reign, listen to what God says about good and evil. And what happens is that's, that's reality. That's the way life is supposed to go. Uh, let me put, a, I guess, another way to help understand what Jesus is saying. There are certain realities in life that are true whether you believe them or not. It doesn't matter what your opinion is. It's just true. For example, there are certain biological realities that are true whether you believe in them or not. You're turning 30, and nothing's going to stop that. You're turning 40, and nothing's going to stop that. You're turning 50, you're turning 60, and in fact, you're going to look like you're 50. You're going to look like you're 60. Put all the anti-aging cream you want, put all those masks that you want, at one point it will catch up to you. It is a biological reality that we age. Or there are also moral realities where if whatever you reap, you will sow. If you're mean to everybody, just know people will probably be mean to you. That's just the way it goes. There are relational realities where if you are always not arguing all the time, people are going to argue with you. There's certain just realities that are out there that you're either going to agree with or not agree with, but yet it's going to happen. The kingdom of heaven, essentially what that is, it is a spiritual reality. It is Jesus saying that there are things that are happening in life that's going to make us more in tune with our humanity or make us less in tune with our humanity. The way we treat people will, make the, will be in a more humane way 
or be in a less humane way. And what the Bible is, is the Bible is access to what true reality is, to what true spiritual reality is, the way things should be. And you could either choose to accept it or not, but that's again why the Bible is written not in just commands telling what to do, but it's telling a story, saying this is what true life is supposed to look like. And if you pause and you go, wait, I thought you said the Bible is about Jesus. What's the whole reality thing? Yes and yes, because Jesus is true reality. Jesus is what life is all about. Because when you look at Jesus' life, he is the most fully human being that ever lived. And he teaches us how to be fully human. He humanizes other people in ways that we would envy to see. He follows God's commands fully in a way that his life is supposed to look like. He loves God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. He submitted himself under God's reign and his rule. And he loved others to the point where he laid down his own life. Jesus was living according to ultimate spiritual reality. And he says, and I bear witness to that, and the scriptures bear witness to that. And notice Jesus doesn't go, and if you don't believe in this, he takes a little whip and just starts whipping you, going, you better believe. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that at this moment. This is why when he just gives pronouncements, going, this is what it is. And you could choose to accept it or not. The Beatitudes, they're not commands. He's just saying, this is who's blessed. Now, you can believe it or not, but according to what Jesus, how he sees reality, which he would say is true reality, this is what it is. That's why when Jesus teaches, when he gives parables, it's like, this is just how life goes. That's how life goes. He's like, um, he's like Copernicus, where they argue scientifically, oh, he was the only one who believed, no, the, the, the world is not in the center of the solar system. It's the sun. What are you talking about? And everyone's like, you're so stupid. And they try to, you know, he pretty much got lambasted. And now we go, of course, that's, that's the sun's the center. Because it's a scientific reality that we all realize was true. Or Martin Luther King Jr., when he would say for racial equality and he'd fight for it in the civil rights movement, he got lambasted. And yet now all of us look at that fact now and we go, oh, he was right. He was right. And Jesus is doing the same thing. Jesus is not smashing us. He's not this authoritarian Roman government ruler saying, you better believe this. He's painting a picture of what life is supposed to look like, the kingdom of God, reality. And the more you understand that, the more you grasp it, the more you have a greater sense of how life really works according to the kingdom, the greater you are. The greater you are. This is what the Bible does for us. The Bible lets us know what reality is. The reality is that your life, it is part of a story, and that story does not revolve around you. You are not the center of life. The story of life is about Jesus, his way, and his kingdoms, and we flourish in our humanity when we adopt that story, when that becomes our story. I like what um, this one author, this theologian named N.T. Wright, he says, when you read your Bible, it's essentially a, not just a story, but he calls it a five-act Shakespearean play. There's five acts to the story. Here are the five acts. Number one is creation. Act one. I think it's on the screen. Act one is creation. Act two is the fall. Act three is Israel. Act four is Jesus, and act five is the church. It's not there, but there it is. Act one is creation, act two the fall, act three Israel, act four Jesus, act five the church. Now, what's interesting is right now, we are living in the middle of act five. We're all in the middle of act five, that the Bible is a story. And what's interesting about act five is that most of the script is missing. All you have is the beginning of act five, which is the New Testament, Jesus coming, and we have the end. 
we know the end. Jesus will come and bring his kingdom to fruition. And our role in this drama of life, this, in this story, is how can we live faithfully in this act of life where we are aware of what happened before and we're also aware of what's going to happen later. And that's why the Bible, when it tells you how do you live according to the Bible, there's nothing specific that's going to tell you how you can be a great faithful coder in your job. How can you, as an Asian American, be a great parent at home to your kids without help from your in-laws? Like, there's nothing specific in here that's going to tell you that. That's not what the Bible is supposed to do for us. It tells us to live faithfully in this Act 5, knowing what happened before, knowing what's happening now, or what's going to happen to come. And the way that looks like, I like the way one pastor put it, the way we do that is we must live consistently, but also creatively in light of the story. That's what it looks like to live biblically. Live consistently and creatively in light of the story. Consistently meaning that your story right now, it is consistent to what this story is saying the kingdom of God should look like. But also you're being creative because your situation is different than every other person's situation. And when Christians do that well, they're being biblical. They're being kingdom living. And when they don't do that well, then it ends up being kind of chaotic. Let me give you an example. You know the new Star Wars sequels? I know there's a lot of geeky analogies I'm giving, but bear with me. Last one. Uh, the Star Wars sequels. Episode uh, 8, no, episode 7, 8, and 9. Terrible. All terrible. And the reason why they're terrible is if you break it down, it's very simple. Episode 7, the one with Harrison Ford and the first sequel that happened, very consistent. It's just like the original Star Wars. Almost too much like it. It's like the exact same script with different actors. Not creative. Not creative. So nobody likes it. So episode eight, the next Star Wars episode. Very creative. Very cre In fact, too creative. Luke Skywalker doesn't act like that. The, the Jedi don't work like that. The dark side doesn't work like that. It's like a different movie. It's so It is very creative, but it's not consistent to the canon of Star Wars. How dare you break the canon. And then episode nine, the next episode is just chaos. It's like everything's kind of out the window with that one. It almost felt like when you were watching the Star Wars sequels, like did these directors even watch Star Wars? Did they watch any of the original? Are they familiar with the Star Wars universe? Because their movies, it seems like it's not, that they don't know anything about it. In a similar way, that's us. When we struggle to live consistently according to the story of scripture or know how to do it creatively, it could be we just aren't familiar with the story. We don't even know what that looks like. But if you want to live consistently with what the story is saying in your story and do it in a creative way, you have to know this. And it's not just about the commands, what does God say about what to do in this situation. It's the story. The story to navigate your life through. That's what the Bible is the purpose for us. And the closer that story is to your heart, that's true to your life, the closer you are living to what true reality is, the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, and that will lead to flourishing. That will lead to flourishing. Now, how do we do this? How do we live out the Bible? And that's the last point. If I ended the sermon right now, you would walk away going, well, I better do a Bible study. I better do this really deeply and try my best to live this out. But here's the problem. At best, if you do that, this is best case scenario, you'll find yourself tired. You'll find yourself feeling pretty weary because you're going to mess up a lot. You're not going to be able to live it out well. Or at worst, you will find yourself being prideful going, yeah, I'm doing it. What's wrong with all you guys? You guys aren't doing it. You're not in the Bible study. And that's kind of how we'll feel. 
And that's where Jesus drops a bomb. Jesus drops a bomb in verse 20, and he tells us after saying scripture matters, make sure you do all of it. In verse 20, look what Jesus says. Here comes the bomb. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoa. So pretty much if you knew first century lingo, the scribes were the main interpreters of the Bible. They're the ones who like interpret that thing. They just know the, the original Hebrew like super well. And the Pharisees, they're like the main practitioners of the Bible. They would try to practice it like crazy. It's like saying, hey, be like, you have to know the Bible as well as seminary professors and you must live it out like Francis Chan. Like you have to do, you know, that's kind of like the standard. And if you don't do that, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Sounds crazy. And is that what Jesus is really saying? Is Jesus saying, so therefore study it really hard and try to follow it? Is that what he's really saying? And I don't think so. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. And it's not just because of my theology, but just keep reading the Sermon on the Mount. Keep reading it. Keep reading through Matthew 5. Because notice what Jesus does. Jesus goes, you cannot be, unless you ex- ex- uh, surpass the righteousness to the Pharisees and scribes who try to live this out. And then all of a sudden, Jesus goes on in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, and he goes, you heard it was said to not murder. You heard it was said to not commit adultery. Which he's referring to the Old Testament, and those are true. And he's not canceling those. He's not saying don't do that anymore. Those are still, you shouldn't murder anybody. But then what does Jesus go on to say? Preview for the next few weeks. But I say unto you, if you are angry with somebody in your heart, you've already committed murder. I say to you, if you have lustful thoughts towards another person of the opposite sex, you've already committed adultery. Very interesting. Why is Jesus saying this? And the reason why is because the way the Pharisees and the scribes And even us, the way we look at scripture and think this is what makes it okay to live out is we do it in a way where so long as we're doing it and we're trying our best to follow it, that's what God wants. That's what God wants from us. And Jesus is saying that might work in religious communities. It might even work in certain types of churches. Not in the kingdom. That is not the type of people I'm looking for in the kingdom. It doesn't work here. Let me give an example of how I explain that. I, sometimes when I counsel married couples, it's always interesting when they're fighting. Actually, I, those are my favorite parts. Like when they're fighting, because I, I like fights, but that's when the real stuff comes out, right? And it's best, not when they're talking about a fight, but they come into a counseling session and they're in the middle of a fight. Ooh, those are like interesting moments to be that third party like counseling that. And oftentimes when I'm in the middle of something like that, the husband and the wife, they'll be fighting. And oftentimes I'll ask whoever is you know, hurt, like, what are you hurt by? And it's always funny. The scenario plays out like this often where the wife will say, you know, he did this, 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 this. And it was so hurtful. It was so hurtful to me. And I go, what do you have to say about that? And the husband's like, well, I said I was sorry. Didn't I apologize to you? I apologize. Why are you still mad? And in that moment, I'm like, wait, okay, right there. <laughs> like, right there. Uh, there's, a, there's a problem there. Uh, you're, you're apologizing like Will Smith to the Oscars. You're making a statement going, I apologize to the Academy, which, you know, you're apologizing, and that works for the Oscars, but it doesn't work in marriage. Because what, in marriage, it's not about the apology, it's where's your heart? Where's your heart? Because the Academy doesn't care about a relationship with you. It just cares that you do the right thing. Say the right things. Save face. But in a marriage, the right thing isn't the main thing. It's where's your heart at? Do you have a heart for what you're doing? And that's, the, that's exactly what Jesus is going to do in the rest of Matthew 5, in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. God is not after your actions. Of course, actions have something that's important, but it's about your heart. 
It's, about, it's not about the fact that you don't murder. It's where's, your, where's anger is in your heart. Lust, it's, it's in your heart. Because the story of the Bible, it's not a God who wants you to do the right thing. The story of the Bible is that there's a God who wants a relationship with you. And he wants you to have a relationship with him. Another way to look at it is the story of the Bible is a story of love. It's a story of love. That's why Matthew 22, when Jesus says, you know how you summarize all the commandments? How should you summarize every single command, all the shellfish stuff, all the crazy weird stories that are there? How do you summarize all of that? Love your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and love your neighbors as yourself. It's all about love. Because that's what God's after. He's after love. And when you capture that, when you see that that's the goal, you're becoming truly human. You're in line with what reality is. You're in line with the kingdom. This is what God wants from us. This is what God's going to do for us. This is what how he's going to challenge us. And it's so important because as Christians, it's very easy to play the Pharisee game. And a lot of us, we're playing the Pharisee game where you intellectually believe in Jesus. You go, yeah, I accept there's a, a God and maybe Jesus might be God. You go to church, you read your, you do the Bible plan, and you check it off, and you go on, you serve, you go on missions and so forth. But God, that's not the main thing he's looking for. It's where's your heart? Where's your heart? And how do we get our hearts to even be there? And that's really hard. Because it's one thing to just go to church or just to read your Bible and do that, but to have your heart behind it, to really have your heart behind it, you can't really do that yourself. So what do you do? How do we... Awaken this heart of ours. Again, I like what Tim Mackey, he does the Bible Project, who I rely upon a lot for this series. Uh, I like what he says. He says, imagine a scenario where you have a relationship with somebody and you messed up. Like, you jacked up. You're defensive at first, but when you think about it, you go, dang, I'm a bad friend. Or I'm a bad spouse. Or I'm a, I am a, I'm a sucky child. And you realize that. And imagine if that person, you, know, you could think about someone who you've done that with. Um, imagine you meet that person, you talk to them, and they actually forgive you. Imagine, hey, everything you did, I know what you did, that was messed up. But we're good. I forgive you. And they still want to stay with you if you're a boyfriend-girlfriend. They still want to be married to you. They still see you as a son or daughter or as a friend. You know what happens when that type of interaction takes place? Don't underestimate that. Uh, something changes in the relationship. There is a deep change that happens in moments like that. Because most relationships, the way it's naturally supposed to work is if you don't like each other, you're done. That's how animals do it, right? Once animals don't like each other, they kill each other. Like they're done. Human beings, same thing. If you don't like each other, the natural way to do it is you just avoid each other, you're done. But when there's those rare moments where, hey, yeah, that was messed up because we're going to hurt each other, but I forgive you. And there's actually healing that's there. You know what happens? It gets deep. Where all of a sudden, especially if you're the offending party, you know that you are now seeing that person in a different light. Where you go, I can't, this person is gracious. I want to honor this person. I want to care for this person. I want to care for this friendship more. I want to care for this marriage more. It just deepens it like crazy. And that's why I, I noticed even for, for myself or even people who are older. I don't know if you ever talk to people who are older, but most people who are older, it, so long as it wasn't a toxic household, they're pretty nice to their parents. Younger folks were like, yeah, you know, whatever. But when we get older, you, we tend to be nicer because, especially for me, like with my parents, I tend to want to, before when I was young, you know, I had to call, be like, hey, mom, like, hey, dad, like, I'm calling you. <laughs> like I had to, like, talk to them. I had to visit them for Christmas and so forth. But now that I'm older, I just call them randomly. I'm like, hey, this, you know, how are you doing? 
I'll visit them. Even when they kind of lecture me, I'm like, oh, it's all good. It's all good. I'm not going to get mad. Because I realized, like, growing up as a kid, I was messed up to my parents. I was not a good kid. I wronged them many times. And even though my parents probably made mistakes with me as a parent, looking back, I'm like, they were super gracious. Very gracious. In fact, they, uh, they forgave me without even, you know, Asians don't explicitly say it, but they, like, through their service, forgave me in the midst of my childhood. And I can't help but think my relationship has now changed with them, where I want to honor them, I want to care for them. And that's, how, that's what forgiveness does. That's how it operates. It, it could be a dramatic moment, or it could be this long period of time where you realize that, wow, this is a relationship where I am very undeserving, and it changes you. And this is what you need with God. That's the only way you're going to experience that with God. If you don't realize how much you fail God, try to keep the commands. Try to keep them. And if you think you do, it's either pride or you're in denial. But face the failures where you go, I mess up a lot. And if you actually not just ignore that, but you bring it to God in the specific ways. you're going, But God, he offers grace. He offers grace to you in those moments. He still welcomes you despite that. And that is driven deep in your heart. Your relationship with God, something will happen. It changes. We call that the gospel. That's the gospel. And that's why at the heart of the story of the Bible, it's not Mount Sinai. That's not the climax of the story of the Bible, Ten Commands. What's the climax? It's the Mount of Calvary. It's the cross. Because Jesus is saying, if you want a relationship with God, it doesn't happen through Sinai. It happens at Calvary. Because that's when you're not just giving your obedience, you're giving your heart. You're giving your heart to him. And so, to conclude, I could ask every single community group member especially, as we gather into our community groups, this is something that we want to consider as a church. What place does God's story have in your life? Or to put it more modern terms, what place does the Bible have in your life? Does it have a place in your life at all? Is it something that is you're familiar with? What place would you want it to have in your life? What place would you want it to have? And where are you at right now with God in the midst of it? Because Jesus says that all this is about me. It's all about me. It's all pointing to me. It's all about the kingdom. And we have to try to follow this because when you follow it and you fail, that's when you especially find grace. That's when you find transformation. And so I'd like the praise team up, but I can invite us to take a moment to pray, to consider, and to reflect. As we think about Jesus and the story of Jesus, and even what we call the Bible in modern terms today, I know for a lot of us here, it could be an awkward relationship, how we engage with Jesus' life, his story, and what he has to say to us. But we take a moment just to be honest and real with the Lord. I always... I think prayers, the most powerful ones are not the fluffy religious ones, but where we're just really honest with God as a father, letting him know that this is how I know your story. I haven't thought about your story since I was in VBS childhood. <laughs> I never thought of it since I was in Sunday school. Or maybe for some of us, you know, I read, I, I'm, I'm reading your story and it just does nothing to my heart. I've been reading without my heart. Wherever you're at, if we could just bring and come to the Lord, share our thoughts about him, his story, and our lives. Now let's just take a moment to pray and have an honest sharing of whether it be confession or reflection. And then I'll close this all together in prayer. So let's take a moment to pause and to pray before God.